Good morning. You know, I'm excited about going to the park. And I go to the park. I don't go to Alexander Park much. It's not, hey, I'm patting myself on the shoulder for this. It's not big enough for me to ride my bike around. It takes several laps to ride. But I go there sometimes and just enjoy the people there. So I think we're going to have a wonderful time. If you don't come to Wednesday night, please try to make make some of these park events. We're going to have a great time. We're in the seventh chapter of the book of 1 Corinthians that inspired and extremely practical book that God has placed here for us. Every scripture is God-breathed, and he's placed it here for us to learn things and to walk into them, and it will make our lives much easier. We remember chapter 5 and chapter 6. Before I go any further, because it was in my heart when I was sitting there, I want to pray right now for Chris and Mark Morrow. Chris is going to have surgery, I think, tomorrow. Mark and Chris do. They carry a lot of weight. They, they have to do a lot of things. I'm amazed at Mark's grace and how he does things. And he still, they still come to church and they still minister here, and we appreciate that. So I'm going to pray for him real quick. Father God, we come before you in the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Lord, you already know the things that Mark and Chris are going through because, Lord, before they reach their destination, you had let them filter through your loving hands. And, Lord, it's something in all of this trial that you want them to learn. So, Lord, I pray that there will not be any bitterness. I pray that the surgery will go well for Chris I pray that they will come out on the other side of this, increase more in their faith and in their love for you, and they're amazed by your goodness and your righteousness. Lord, just let them know that they're not alone. They have brothers and sisters in Christ, but more than that, they're not alone because of King Jesus. He allowed the trials and the tribulations to touch them, and he's going to be with them all the way so they can have confidence in him. So we want to be in prayer for them until they come out on the other side, and we just need to be encouraging to them. And we ask this in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. Amen. 1 Corinthians chapter 7. It's a practical book. I like that that God has placed here for every believer to read and and take note from. In chapters 5 and 6, we touched on the problem of sexual ethics that was going on in the church at Corinth. And now we turn our attention to chapter 7, where God has given us a very positive, let me say it again, a very positive look at sex. That's going to be our topic this morning, sex. Perk your ears up. Let's, let's ride with this. But it's, it's sex in the context of marriage. So here we go. You know, it's easy to gloss over some of these chapters. You think about them. Should I sit here long? Should I stay here long? But I feel like we need to sit here for a little while. So I'm only really going to 
look at five verses in chapter, one, in chapter seven here. I don't want to embarrass myself as the enemy was saying, hey, just gloss over it. But it's too important. A church family, if we didn't take time like we usually do over every word in every book to discuss it and to evaluate it and to toss it back and forth to what the Lord wants us to get from us. We're, we are studying and carefully, we exposit each part of the scriptures here. God wants us to dispel, I believe, a lot of myths as it relates to God and sex and spirituality. And hopefully, it will give us the stability for flourishing marriages that God would have for us because that's what he wants. And part of the fundamental building blocks for that is found right here in this text. Bear with me. And if you start to look at me kind of sideways, I know I'm hitting a spot. I'm not going to rush it. I'm going to continue. I know I'm right where I need to be. We've reached a major dividing part in 1 Corinthians. It really divides in half at the division. It comes in chapter 7 because for six chapters, Paul has spent his time talking about what he thinks church, the church needs to do, what they need to know. All of that is in the first six chapters. Now in chapter 7, he will finally respond to the letter that Phoebe has brought him. Remember that letter that was brought, and it was the concerns of the Corinthians church. And from here to the end of this book, he's going to deal with questions that was raised from this letter. We have to remember we're at a disadvantage because we don't have the letter they wrote to Paul. They apparently have answered Paul with a kind of, why can't we, Paul, that attitude, in which they are looking for Paul's response. So he takes up the items in their letter, we will see this, one by one. Most of them introduced by Perry Day, now concerning. We'll see that a lot of times as we go through this book. Do you guys remember what a party line is? Some of you are old enough. I remember the party line. Well, those party lines, I think that's a helpful analogy here. We're listening to one side of the conversation without knowing who is on the other end. That can get you in a lot of trouble sometimes, too. The words and sentences, they're understandable that Paul preaches here. But nonetheless, you can be quite in the dark until the conversation partner is actually re revealed. And so here, in effect, we know just enough from Paul's end of the conversation to make us think we know more than we do. So this morning, all I have is a five verses from this text. We'll be speaking about sex. To laden you with a responsibility having sex, 1 Corinthians chapter 7, we've hit several of the important chapters in 5 and 6. We've touched on the problems of sexual ethics of Corinth and sins there. I know you've heard many sermons on that, but now we turn our attention to chapter 7, where God is giving us a positive look 
Notice this in the context. You would think by the way it reads, especially in the, the older NIVs, you would think it was about marriage. And that's something you probably haven't heard a lot of sermons on. So here we go. Now, we don't know what their question to Paul was. We have to decipher them from his answer. And therefore, there's a lot of confusion and stumblings. And therefore, in these texts, people are led astray because we don't have the clarity of the questions. We can find them, but they are a little bit harder. I'm reminded of what Proverbs says. We must dig for it like hidden treasure, and that's what we will do. So this text, like many others, till the end of the book, we're going to have to work very hard to understand what the questions were. Therefore, give me a little liberty. I'm going to break down the text a little bit more. If you would not change, I'm not going to change the text, but to try and hopefully correct a few things that would give us a better understanding to what was actually said. Verse one, now after that, it's a colon there. And I want you to put some parentheses, some quotation marks around, it is good for a man not to marry. Your Bible might read, I know the earlier I had to climb all the way up some stairs, go to the attic, pull out my first Bible when I was saved. And I was reminded of all the writings I had put in each book, and then I pulled another one out and read it. And most of those earlier NIVs, it says it is good for a man not to marry. Your Bible might read that. But to marry, you can scratch that out if you will, if you have that, and not trying to be heretical. But scratch out to marry, if that's what your Bible says, it shouldn't be there. But in case it is, go right ahead and scratch it out because it's not the phrase that's in the sentence. It's a good guess. That's what the NIV translators did. They guessed to try to figure out what Paul was trying to answer. But it's really not the question. And I can tell that by the rest of the answer to their questions, Now, their answer is found immediately in verse 2. He gives the reasons for it in verse 5, because of so much immorality. But here's the answer for it now, verse 2. He says, each man should have his own wife and let each woman have her own husband. That's their answer. The question, though, is a little bit harder to understand because it's veiled in a euphemism. It's veiled in an idiom. We've got to try and understand. Like I said, the NIV translator said, we think it's about marriage, the conversation he's having. Here's what it says, though. It is good for a man not to touch a woman. In your margin, it might be, you need to write down Genesis 26, 20, verse 6, and Proverbs 6, 29. We have to understand often in, Jewish, in the Jewish mindset, the idiom for sexual intercourse is referenced by the phrase to touch a woman. Now, obviously, remember the concern of the Pharaoh when Sarah was there was not that he didn't touch her, Abimelech, but he said in Genesis 
uh, chapter 20, the latter part of verse 6, God speaking, therefore, I did not let you touch her. The context, that's also in Proverbs 6, 29, the same and, and several others we will find to touch the woman was a euphemism to have sex. Now, here's the answer. The question is, they're writing to Paul, is it coloss? Is it good? Is it wholesome to have sex? That's their question. The answer comes in, in verse 2, the latter part. That's why Paul says, let each man, and it's very emphatic there, let each man and every man should have his own wife, and let each and every woman have her own husband. Now, a lot of people, they say this must be about marriage. That's what the NIV translators did. That's, that must be what Paul means. That's what he's talking about. But the problem is, in a few verses that comes later, in verse 6, in verse 26, 27, 32, his answer is no there. Not every person should find a wife, and not every person should find a husband. Clearly, it meant to have a wife and to have a husband. If it meant to go find one, date one, and marry one, it wouldn't contradict the rest of the chapter. Therefore, the question is not one about marriage, because we usually throw that in in marriage. It's not about marriage. I know it's a little technical, but we'll get out of it. The question is not, hey, Paul, we want to know, is it a good thing? Is it wholesome? Is it a wholesome thing to get married? That's not the question. The question is, is it good and wholesome to have sex? That's the question. We're not talking about sex with a prostitute. We're not talking about having sex with your neighbor's wife or your father's wife, what somebody was doing. He's not talking about those abhorrent things in Scripture. Those are clear. He's talking about the fact of a guy who's trying to live a spiritual life, a godly life. It seems like sex would kind of be an exception. It seems sex seems so fleshly. It seems so earthly. It seems so hedonistic. I don't know, sex just doesn't seem to fit in the good, wholesome, coloss of a Christian life. That's the question they've written to Paul. And so I might be married and all that, but should we, what's the word, should we just cut loose in the bedroom? It just doesn't feel right. And I'm married and I'm in this relationship. That's the question they've asked Paul. Paul comes right back. It's a good thing to have sex. Answer is at the bottom of verse two. If you look, each man, this is the answer Paul gives them. Each man should have sex with his own wife and let each woman have sex with their own husband. That does not mean, dun, 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 dun. We're going to find that out later. Let's go find a husband and let's go find a wife because his answer in the rest of this chapter is no, not everyone should have their own wife. And not everyone should have their own husband. And we know that. So the emphatic nature of the construction, 
He says each person, each man, and each woman should have. We're not talking about marriage. Circle the word have. Now look across the page, if you can do that, to 2 Corinthians 5.1. Paul is concerned about some sin in the church, an incestuous relationship. Notice the idiom. He says it again. It's the same Greek word. It is actually reported that there is some who has sexual immorality among you. And such immoral, sexual immorality as is not even named among the Gentiles. Here it is. That a man has his father's wife. Same word, same thing. This is a euphemism for sex. So it is a good, is it good and coloss, is it wholesome to touch a woman? He's asking, is it wholesome to have sex? He says, I'm just wondering I'm trying to be spiritual. I'm trying to be righteous. I'm trying to live a godly life. And it just doesn't seem right. Now, these, these are married people talking here. Is it wholesome? Is it righteous to have sex? And the answer is in the bottom of verse 2. Each man have sex with his own wife and let each woman have sex with her own husband. And if you, if the way it flows, that is so keeping with the rest of of this text. The question is not, hey, Paul, should we get married or not? The question is, I'm growing as a Christian. I'm trying to be spiritual as I can, and it doesn't seem quite righteous, you know, to have sex. They're hung up on that. It seems kind of paganistic. Should I do that, Paul? It kind of feels like it's a little bit shameful a little bit dirty. Maybe we should kind of back off on that. Answer, Paul says, you're married, have sex. That's what it says. Each husband have sex with your wife and wife, each wife have sex with her husband. The answer Paul gives them, it's a good thing. This is what Paul is saying. Don't think sex is dirty. Don't think that it's unrighteous. Don't think that it is in some way mutually exclusive to spirituality. That's their hang-up. Don't think that it's bad. You know, this is not a post-Paul activity, but Paul is having to straighten this out. You know the account. Sex was created in the garden, and I know that seems odd. God creates two naked people to run around in a garden. You better have high fences up if you do that today. Now, in the children ministry, that doesn't seem like a righteous lesson for our kids, but God says it's good. He looks down from heaven and says it's good. And I'm harping on this because it seems like in Christianity, and it seems in the culture that spirituality and sexuality never really meet. Even in Christian circles, sex can be thought of as dirty. Think of the Puritans. Example, they're an example of an ardent, zealous, Bible-thumping Christians, the Puritans. Those guys are known for being biblical and zealous for God. Has now been extracted in a word a colloquial English word that means if someone has repressive 
intention or views of sex. They call them puritanical. So does that mean if you love the Lord, that if you follow the Lord, well, you know, what's your views on sex? It must be you're not having it. And as long as we're talking about sex and all, I'll wake you up a little bit. How about this one? It, 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 that word has been so colloquially, colloquially stated that you've heard of the missionary position. That brings a slight on the missionaries. I don't know much of them. But what they're trying to say, I guess, we're supposed to have a very low view of sex. You're really excited. They're really excited about sharing the gospel, faith, but I know something about their sex life. But why did that phrase get attached to that? Think about it. How about this? Way back in 1079 AD, a pope named Gregory decided that he would no longer have any leaders in the church that are married to go home at night and have sexual experience with their wives. That just didn't seem to fit, Pope Gregory said. So since then, no married priest. So in the Roman Catholic Church, it's been infiltrated into society thinking that if you're really spiritual, if you're going to be in leadership in the church, if you're going to be someone who is super righteous, then I can't imagine that sex would be a part of your life. That doesn't seem to match. So we have in our culture, just like the Corinthians, starting to think if you're righteous or spiritual, sex doesn't seem to fit in the picture. And yet, by way, every righteous and biblical group of people have understood that sexuality is a good thing. It's not dirty, and it has always been celebrated. Matter of fact, the Puritans, and this is funny to me, when they would get disciplined by their pastor, if the word would get back to the pastor, how it would get back, I don't know, the spouse or the husband may have crept back and told them something, but they would march them up right in front of the church and ask them, why aren't you guys having sex? That's how important it was to them. They were zealous for God's word. That did not mean they were, had squeamish views about sex. Think about this passage, Genesis 26. You all know the account. Isaac is trying to pass off Rebekah as his sister. The same way his dad tried to pass off Sarah. Abimelech happens to gaze out his window and sees Isaac showing the New King James says endearment. I think the King James says it too, to Rebecca. Now, the word is really not endearment. That's really a watered-down Sunday school word. The word in the Hebrew is sahak. It means to sport. It means to play, to make sport, to toy with. It means to foreplay. That's the word. That's what Ambimelech saw when he looked and saw Isaac. They were fondling each other. Ambimelech looks down and says, get a room, Isaac. This is Isaac, 
the great patriarch of the faith, the son of promise, and he gets a spare moment in the back of Abimelech's castle and he forgets who he is. What about the Song of Solomon? The whole book is about his adventurous relationship with his wife. And God says, I don't see a dichotomy here. And yet we do it all the time. Do you know how many crimes are committed in cars, drive-by shootings, street races, carjackings, all kinds of driving violations? That's really bad. And yet all of you this morning, I'm pretty sure you drove your car to church because you know that's that when it comes to church, you don't expect a sermon about driving is bad. We don't do that because we can separate the two. We know that driving is good. Carjacking is bad. Getaway cars for bank robberies are bad. We know that. How do we know that? Because we can separate the two. Yet we can't separate sex. Somehow, yet the pollution of sexual sin seems to affect the things that God said, I don't want affected. And yet we've got to fight to say, no, I'm not going to let this happen. Sex is not bad. Sex in scripture is as this word in verse one says, it's coloss, it's good. God said it. And there's question, their question was, It's not a good thing, is it, Paul? Paul tells them, of course it is. Yes, it's good. Sex is not bad. Adultery is bad. Sex is not bad. Fornication is bad. Sex is not bad. Incest is bad. You understand that we've we've got to say, I'm going to separate the two. I must have to. You might say, well, PV, I separate the two, but the reason I bring some unspoken guilt and shame into the sexual relationship with my spouse is because I have some sexual scars, because I've had sexual sin in my past, and now it becomes much more emotional, much more personal, and all I have to say is the same thing needs to happen. There needs to be a separation It may be harder when it's a memory of what happened. That may be harder for you now to come and say, I'm going to celebrate and enjoy the great gift of sex in marriage because you've got sexual sin in your past. See, we break rules and God makes us pay for them. We carry guilt. And what God is saying is it may be hard for you to separate the two but separate them you must. You still must allow it to happen. I got a great example for me anyway. I don't think Atlanta sports will ever live down the Falcons Super Bowl loss in 2017. Ever since that loss, they've been terrible and in flux, the team has. I hate the Falcons because that Super Bowl loss, I was jumping up and down ready to celebrate and it never came. But you know what? I still love them. See, it may be hard to separate the two, but if you're a Falcon fan, you must. Same with sex. Sex is nothing to be ashamed of. Sexual sin 
is something to be ashamed of. So get over it because God is, he's a God who takes our sins and separates them as far as the east is from the west, he tells us. And he buries them in the deepest sea. God does not want you to think of sex in a marriage as sin. Remember the account of Peter's vision when he was on the rooftop and he was hungry and he, he sees this vision? The immediate context is about the dietary laws and Gentiles coming to the Lord. But Peter sees this huge sheet and all those animals and creeping things were inside. And God, remember what God told him? Kill Peter, grill and eat. I don't know if he said grill, but that's what he should have said. Grill and eat. But remember what Peter said. No way. I have never eaten anything common or unclean. Because in that, in that sheet was some foods he wasn't supposed to eat. According to the Old Testament ceremonial laws, well, God was ditching the Old Testament ceremonial laws, and he was establishing the moral law. And one of the moral law was to reach the world with the gospel. And so the dietary laws was going south. And Peter said to God three times, I'm not going to do it. It's bad. And here's the line in verse 15. It's what God said to Peter, and it may be something you need to hear this morning as it relates to sex. God told him, God said, don't call anything common or impure that God have made clean. God has made sex clean in marriage. And so what I've got to do is not violate God's word. It may take you some time, some dialogue with someone. It might take a lot of work to separate the two, but you must separate them. So you can look at the one and say, I like the Falcons. I just don't like them inventing ways to lose, but I need to learn to love them. Sex is precious and good. It is a gift from God. It is something he designed, and it's not dirty. It's good. Now, verses 3 through 5, he ups the ante. Paul, the Holy Spirit will not let Paul get off this thought. It's not just Paul saying things. It's the Holy Spirit telling him what to put down on the page. He says, let the husband render or fulfill to his wife the affections due her, your marital duty. And likewise, also the wife to her husband. The wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. And likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. He goes on to say in verse 5, do not de deprive one another except with consent for a time that you may give yourselves to fasting and prayer and come together again so that Satan does not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. It's funny to me that he says because of your lack of self-control, self-control is one of the fruits of the Spirit. But he says because of your lack of self-control. Render and do. Now, I don't know, this is probably not romantic language here, but it might lead to romance, but it's not romantic language. Do, apodomai, the Greek word. It means to pay back a debt. This passage is saying pay back 
your sexual debt that you owe to your spouse. How did we get in a sexual debt, by the way? You might say, I don't remember that. Well, it was when you walked down the aisle and put one of these rings on your finger. A major component of that was to be with that person and become one flesh. To God, and he's the only one that counts, to God, that was not bad. That was something more than a philosophical or theological profundity. That made you a sexual partner to that person you walk with down the aisle. So you've got one of these. Guess what? You've got a sexual debt now to pay. When you walk the aisle, guess what? You agreed, and the agreement was one flesh. And it is, it is a ministry that God, this is a ministry that God has called you to because of this. When you pay back your debt, what do they call it? They say you are servicing the debt. The word servicing is a Greek word, and that Greek word means ministry. You are ministering the debt. We are to minister to people we are indebted to. I don't know about you. I'm indebted to Jesus Christ, and I must minister to him. But when we are married, we are to service that debt. We are to pay it back a sexual ministry. We owe the debt to God because you signed on the page. It is something that you need to pay on. Now, I get it. This doesn't sound romantic. Here's the thing I learned on this little break that I had when Pastor Jonathan was teaching. In my heart, there was a void saying I wasn't fulfilling my calling. And to sit and listen to the other pastors and hear them preach, it wasn't, I wasn't at ease with that. And I don't want you to have the mindset, this is a nice sermon, if you think so, for those newlyweds. It's not for the newlyweds. If you're saying that, I might have to start all over. You missed the point. Yeah, I can hear the excuses. Yeah, but my wife and I, we've been married 30 years, and she's not into it that much, and it's whichever way is fine with me. But listen, it's not about you and your wife deciding it's okay. The Bible says it's a ministry divinely sanctioned and that God has put on your shoulder so to speak, to say, I am called to do this. We, we have to dec decisively declare our calling. I'm about to end. It's going to be short. I don't know how much you could take. I could go on and on about this. But I must bring this scripture up because I'll never forget reading this scripture. And I was tickled by it. I was tickled by it, but I was also just blown away with how God wants to refresh us and give us, give us uh, things that makes us love one another more and all of that, and that God would be so intimately involved in the minor things. They're not minor to God. 
You know the account. Abraham is sitting at his tent door, and all of a sudden he sees these three men. I believe Jesus, I know Jesus was there. Some people said it was Jesus and two angels. I've heard some said it was the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. But remember what Abraham does. He runs and tells Sarah to prepare a meal. Well, after the meal, they're talking, and the Lord tells Abraham the good news of Isaac. Genesis 18, 8 through 13. So he took butter and milk and the calf which he had prepared and set it before them. And he stood by them under the tree as they ate. Then they said to him, where is Sarah, your wife? So he said, here in the tent. And he said, I will certainly return to you according to the time of life. And behold, consider this, Sarah, your wife, shall have a son. Now, we know Sarah was listening in the tent door, which was behind him. Now, Abraham and Sarah was old and well-advanced in age. And I told you when it says well-advanced, that's well-stricken. They're, they're, they're past the age of childbearing. Some might say they're past the age of even having this activity going on. And Sarah had passed the age of childbearing. Therefore, Sarah laughed within herself, saying, Notice what she says. This is the point. After I have grown old, shall I have pleasure? Huh. She's not talking about birthing a baby there. She's talking about being in a sexual relationship with Abraham. After I'm this old, and you know, you know that she wanted this child, a, a, a promise, Isaac. But her first thoughts wasn't about having Isaac. Her first thoughts, I'm going to have pleasure again, and I'm well stricken in age. This has to be a miracle. That's my commentary. My Lord, being old also, so she throws some shade at Abraham too. And the Lord said to Abraham, why did Sarah laugh, saying, shall I surely bear a child since I am old? The child, once again, will be great. I've been waiting all my life, but truth be told, she was waiting for the pleasure that comes from having sex and producing a child. God created us, two genders, male and female. They can make up all these others if they want to. It's what God says that matters. There's male and female. For when we do get married... If that's your calling, we'll look at that next week. The two becoming one flesh. The worship team can come up. I'll close with Ephesians 5, 31 through 33. For this reason, Paul speaking, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This is a great mystery, but I speak concerning Christ and the church. Nevertheless, let each one of you in particular so love his own wife as himself and let the wife see that she respects her husband. Father God, everything you created is good. Man will come alone and try his best to defile all of your creation. But it's good 
to have sex within a marriage. You said so, Lord. Lord, I pray that this message would strengthen the marriage relationship. I pray that those who are outside of marriage, we'll look at that next week. It seems like Paul just continues to drill down. But really, he's drilling up to your word, Lord, telling us how it should be if you're married and if you're not married, if you're wanting to be married. And if you're not wanting to, God is there to give you grace to handle those things, that our marriages will be better that we will be the husbands and wives we're supposed to be, that the church will flourish and be everything it's called to be. That's why the Holy Spirit wrote these words. They're having a problem in Corinth, and, and our culture has a problem with sexual immorality. Oh, it's okay. No, it's not okay. It's okay. Thus saith the Lord... Because that's how we're going to be judged. What does God say on the matter? Because his word is the only thing that counts. So, Lord, I pray that marriages will flourish. I pray that we will live holy lives thinking of you, the price you paid, that we might live holy lives that we might allow the Holy Spirit to transform us into the image of Christ by obeying him. That's what counts. That's what matters. And we ask all of these things through Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior, to the Father God. Let's stand and close with the song, please.